You're listening to Kalam Institute's podcast series, Sira, Life of the Prophet, by Sheikh Abdul Nasir Jangda. Visit us on the web at kalaminstitute.org or find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash kalaminstitute. Bismillahi walhamdulillah wa salatu wa salamu ala rasulillahi wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in. Inshallah, continuing with our series on the life of the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam, Asiratul Nabawiya, the prophetic biography. In the previous uh, sessions that we had, we've been off for a couple of weeks uh, due to uh, just travel, and I guess a lot of folks were also probably on uh, holidays. But I was traveling, so I wasn't able to make it the last couple of weeks. But we're picking back up this week, inshallah. Where we had left off was that the Prophet of Allah sallallahu alaihi wasallam. We had spent quite a few weeks, uh, quite a few sessions, talking about the hijra, the migration of the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam from Mecca to Medina, and the whole process of that and the experiences uh, that the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam had. Uh, during the course of that journey, and a lot of the lessons that we can learn from a lot of those experiences. And then where we last left off was that the Prophet ﷺ had arrived in the city of Quba, which was to better understand what you could consider a suburb of Medina. And the Prophet ﷺ had arrived there. And the Prophet ﷺ had used that opportunity to establish a masjid there in Quba and also to establish the bonds of brotherhood between the Muhajirun and the Ansar. And a lot of the initial community discourse had taken place at that time. The previous session, uh, we actually talked quite a bit about the Prophet's vision and strategy for developing and building of a community. What we'll be talking about this particular week is that the Prophet ﷺ, after spending, and I mentioned the different, the variety of different narrations which talk about how many days the Prophet ﷺ spent in Quba, but the more uh, sound, if you will, account, and that is the opinion of Imam Bukhari, what he's given preference to as well, and that is that the Prophet ﷺ spent 12 days at the place of Quba, and then Friday morning after praying Salatul Fajr in Quba, the Prophet ﷺ set out to move towards the city of Medina, Al-Madinatul Munawwara. Now, you have to understand that, you know, even at that time, this, you know, Medina being a lot smaller, and them of course traveling on foot or by camel, the Prophet ﷺ was actually traveling by camel, and uh, it's even discussed which camel this was, but uh, majority of the scholars of Sirah and Hadith say that the camel, it was the one by the name of Qaswa, Al-Qaswa. So the Prophet ﷺ was riding this camel, so we understand that traveling by camel from Quba to Medina would take a little bit longer than maybe what we're accustomed to, what we're used to, but what you have to factor in, what you have to take into account is that the Prophet ﷺ is not traveling by himself. It's not just him and Abu Bakr anhu. And in fact, some of the accounts say that Abu Bakr anhu was riding on the camel of the Prophet ﷺ. They were riding together. But there was the entire community was walking along with them. And in fact, the scene is described within the books of Sirah and Hadith that as the Prophet ﷺ was riding this camel, literally hundreds of men surrounded the camel of the Prophet ﷺ and were walking along with him. So this was not just a journey or traveling from one location to another, this was a procession. An entire procession was moving. So it was a very slow, uh, deliberate journey from 
the, from the Masjid of Quba to what would eventually be designated as Al-Masjid Nabawi Al-Sharif, the Prophet's Mosque in Medina Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. So this whole procession is taking place, this slow, elaborate journey from point A to point B. Now, on the way, basically once they eventually set out from Quba and they started moving, it was time for Dhuhr on the way. And so the Prophet of Allah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam stopped in a neighborhood of Banu Salim. The Prophet ﷺ stopped in the neighborhood of Banu Salim and it says, Fi Batnil Wadi. It was kind of like a spot in between some of the mountains there uh, around Medina or right at the outskirts of Medina. And it was a neighborhood of Banu Salim. I'm going to talk a little bit more in the coming sessions, a whole discussion, elaborate. We'll just take one session to talk about the layout of Medina. What was the geographical layout of Medina? What was the, so, what was the social structure, the economic system that was prevalent in Medina? And how was Medina exactly laid out? But what you can understand right now is that there were basically nine neighborhoods that Medina was made up of. So think of them again as like major subdivisions that we would have, like Andalus, right over here. Um, for people listening, I'm not talking about Spain, Andalus, I'm talking about <laughs> Andalus and Irving, Texas. So uh, think of like a neighborhood or a subdivision. So Medina was carved out into these nine major neighborhoods, nine subdivisions. And these belong to different tribes and different families within those tribes. And some of them even belong to the Jews of Medina. Specifically, Banu Qaynuqa. They were resident within Medina. And the other two Jewish tribes, Banu Nadir, were a couple of miles north of Medina, and Banu Qurayza were a couple of miles south of Medina, but like I said, we'll talk more in detail later. So the Prophet ﷺ is traveling and he's in the neighborhood of Banu Salim when the time of Zuhur comes. So this was Friday, this was a Jumu'ah. If you recall, if you remember, we talked about this a few sessions ago, that the Prophet ﷺ had instructed Musa bin Umayr in As'ad bin Zurara. As'ad bin Zurara was one of the leaders of the Ansar and one of the leaders of the community, the Nuqaba, the Prophet ﷺ had appointed in Medina. So he was the organizer. Musa bin Umayr was the preacher that the Prophet ﷺ had sent and he had instructed them to institute uh, Friday prayer. Salatul Jumu'ah. So this was something that was already going on. So the Prophet ﷺ stopped here in the neighborhood of Banu Salim and said, we will pray Jumu'ah here. And they conducted the Jumu'ah prayer and the Prophet ﷺ gave the khutbah there. There are some accounts of what he talked about in the khutbah. They're not very authentically narrated, so I'm not relating the entire khutbah here. Majority of the scholars of Sirah usually do not mention that khutbah. Um, because it's not very authentically narrated. But from those weak narrations, the Prophet of Allah ﷺ talked about the prioritizing the life of the hereafter over the life of this world. This was the khutbah of the Prophet ﷺ. He talked about how human beings will live, will experience these two realms, dunya and akhirah. And he talked about what, does, what is the dunya when compared to the akhirah. And what is the magnitude and the greatness of the hereafter when you compare it to the temporal nature of the life of this world. And then the Prophet ﷺ emphasized and encouraged the companions to prioritize the hereafter over the life of this world. And it was a very short brief khutbah, even if you take those weak narrations into account, um, basically the whole thing 
is written out into maybe five or six lines. And in the style of the delivery of the Prophet ﷺ, it probably was not more than 10 minutes, if even that much. 10 to 12 minutes was the khutbah of the Prophet ﷺ. So he gives the khutbah there. And this was the first Jumu'ah that was led, that was conducted, that was instituted by the Prophet of Allah ﷺ. Now when he concludes with the Jumu'ah khutbah, he, next thing you know, when he gets on his camel, he's surrounded by some of the men of Banu Salim, the tribe that, whose neighborhood he's in. And specifically some of their leaders, Itban bin Malik and Abbas bin Ubada bin Nadla, they're at the head of this little contingent, this group, and they are holding the rope of the camel of the Prophet ﷺ, the she-camel, and they are saying, Aqim indana ya Rasulallah. Stay with us, O Messenger of Allah. And he says, and they tell him, Aqim indana fil adadi wal uddati wal manaati. Stay with us, we have numbers, we are ready, and we will protect you, O Messenger of Allah. Stay with us, please. The Prophet of Allah said, Khallu sabilaha fa innaha ma'mura. The Prophet you know, showing them appreciation for their offer. He said, leave the rope of the she camel, she is, she is under the command which meant that she is under the command of Allah. In another narration, the Prophet ﷺ said to them specifically that the she-camel will stop حَيْثُ anzalani Allah. The she-camel will stop where Allah has decreed for me to take up residence. But until then, leave the she-camel. It's not even me who's directing her. It's directly under the guidance and the instruction of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And this was part, some of the scholars of seerah have discussed the wisdom of this. And this is very important for us to take into consideration because this is a lesson in leadership. Before the Prophet ﷺ arrived here in Al-Madinatul Munawra, or rather even before the Prophet ﷺ, before Islam, came to Yathrib, Al-Madinatul Munawwara, the two major Arab tribes were Aws and Khazraj. Then there were three major Jewish tribes, like I mentioned before, Qaynuqa, Nadir, and Quraidha. And there was pretty much, you can say, all-out civil war in this part of this region. There was full-scale civil war in this region. Aws and Khazraj had declared war against one another. And they had had, a ve- they had had multiple very severe battles where hundreds of people were killed. And that's huge for that time. Hundreds of people were killed. We were just uh, covering seerah at the seminary with the students. And about 14 sahaba died in the Battle of Badr, were shaheed in the Battle of Badr. Four, 14, one four. And about 70 of the mushrikun fell in the Battle of Badr, even though the Battle of Badr was such a huge scene. So now imagine if hundreds of people died from all sides, think about how severe that must have been. As the equivalent in our times of thousands of people dying in a battle. So it's very, very severe. And Aws and Khazraj had waged war against one another, and Qaynuqa'a had teamed up with, oh, uh, with Khazraj from the Arabs, and the other two Jewish tribes, Banu Nadir and Banu Quraidha, had teamed up with Aws. So even the Jewish tribes were split. And so everybody had been fighting each other. And the last major battle that they had had was five years before the Prophet ﷺ arrived in Medina. And that was known as Yomu Bu'ath. On one day, hundreds of people were killed from all different tribes. It was very severe. Now if you take into account, this was only five years ago. What that tells you is that the wounds were still very, very fresh. 
So things were still very delicate. Now Islam had come, yes, and Islam had now been there for a year or two years almost, right, really solidly. And so things were starting to take root and establish and they were getting past the issues. But the Prophet ﷺ was very sensitive to this particular dynamic there in Medina. And he understood that the Prophet ﷺ going one way or another would show preference to any one tribe over another and it would just bring about old issues and maybe you know, uh, conflict that had been put to rest previously. And so the Prophet ﷺ not wanting to stir any wounds, the Prophet ﷺ abstained from this. Secondly, even if there wasn't this, there, there wasn't this his, history, that was already there, even if there wasn't this history, the Prophet ﷺ himself verbally choosing any one tribe or any one neighborhood or family or even person for that matter would possibly lead to others feeling slighted. Because if the Prophet ﷺ stays with somebody that nobody knew of before, like he himself decides, I'm gonna go stay with that person, someone like Asa'ad bin Zurara, who was one of the founders of the Muslim community in Al-Madinatul Munawwara, could very easily say like, well, what about me? I was one of the first people that came to you all the way there in Mecca. I came and met you over there. I gave you an oath of allegiance. Nobody was following you. And I established a whole community here. I hosted Musab bin Umaid. I did this. I did, what, what about me? And even if he wouldn't disrespect the Prophet because the Sahaba had the utmost respect, he would still feel bad possibly. So the Prophet ﷺ to abstain from all of this, to protect everyone from all of this, there was this divine plan. The Prophet ﷺ said, this is in the hands of Allah. It's a decision of Allah Himself. And فَإِنَّهَا مَأْمُورًا This she-camel is being guided by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So leave it be. And the narrations which are mentioned by many different scholars, Imam Ahmad ibn Hanbal mentions this in his Musnad, Ibn Ishaq mentions this in his Seerah, that it mentions that as the Prophet ﷺ passed through every single neighborhood, when he passed through the neighborhood of Banu Bayada, they similarly came, Ziyad bin Labid, Farwat ibn Amr came and grabbed the rope of the she-camel. They said, Halumma ilayna ya Rasulullah. Come to us, O Messenger of Allah. We're ready. We're prepared. We got everything taken care of. And again, the Prophet very politely said, Leave the she-camel. It's under the command of Allah. It's under the guidance of Allah. Then he passes through Banu Sa'ida. Same thing occurs. He passes through the neighborhood of Banu Harith. The same thing occurs. The Prophet ﷺ then passes through the neighborhood of Bani Adi bin Al-Najjar. Now Banu Adi ibn Najjar, this is a very interesting um, family if you will. And the reason why they're so interesting is because they are related to the Prophet ﷺ. The great-grandmother of the Prophet ﷺ was from this family. Was from this family. So Hashim, his wife was from this family. The, the mother of Abdul Muttalib, the grandfather of the Prophet ﷺ. So the great-grandmother of the Prophet ﷺ, she's from this family. So when the Prophet ﷺ passed through there, they came to the Prophet ﷺ and they sent some of their leaders, Salit bin Qais, um, and his father, they came and they said, Ya Rasulullah, halumma ila akhwalika. Come live with your uncles. We're your uncles, so come live with your uncles. And the Prophet ﷺ again excused himself and he said that you'll have to leave the she-camel, she is under the instruction of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. 
And the Prophet ﷺ kept passing through there until he finally came to... So before I talk about where the Prophet ﷺ ended up, along this way, as he, pa- as he is passing through neighborhood after neighborhood after neighborhood, the Prophet ﷺ passed by the home of Abdullah bin Ubay bin Sulul. Abdullah bin Ubay bin Sulul. Abdullah bin Ubay bin Sulul is the man who will later on go on to be known as Ra'isul Munafiq. Munafiqeen, the leader of the hypocrites. And he was a major force against the Muslims and the community of the Prophet ﷺ. So he was very difficult to deal with. And he created quite a few problems later on down the road for the Prophet ﷺ. The Prophet ﷺ had already been told he was from Khazraj and he was a leader of Khazraj. The Prophet ﷺ had been informed that Ya Rasulullah, we would appreciate it if you could show maybe a little bit more, you know, you could show a little bit of love to Abdullah bin Ubay bin Sulul. And the reason for that, Ya Rasulullah, is that he is a leader of Khazraj. We had pretty much to put Bu'ath, the wars behind us. We had agreed, we had developed a consensus that we would declare him to be the leader of the entire city of Yathrib. That he will be the leader. And he'll be the arbitrator. And he'll be the final decision and the final word when it comes to our affairs here in Yathrib. Even not only just Aus and Khazraj, the Arab tribes, but even the Jewish tribes had agreed to this. So all of this was pretty much set until a few individuals come back from the season of Hajj, start talking about the fact that they met the Messenger of Allah wasallam, And from there on, the rest is history. Now majority of the city is Muslim. Majority of our tribes are Muslim now. And we wait for you and we look to you and we're ecstatic that you're here to lead us now. And he feels like he's been sidelined because of this whole process. And we feel like his feelings might be a little hurt. So if you could show him a little love, that'd be, that'd be great. That'd be fantastic. We could maybe avoid some type of conflict. And the humility of the Prophet ﷺ was such. The Prophet ﷺ was such a pragmatic leader. That the Prophet ﷺ took this request, not just under consideration, but he obliged. And so as he was passing through these neighborhoods, he stopped outside the house of Abdullah bin Ubay bin Sulul, asked someone to go and request him that the Prophet ﷺ would like to meet with him, and would like to, you know, uh, greet him. And... So some of the members of his tribe, Khazraj, they went and they, the Muslims, they went and they knocked the door. When he answered the door, he's like, what, what do you need? What do you want? He knew that this, this whole, you know, uh, there's, just, there's just all this commotion in Medina today because the Prophet ﷺ is coming. So he was aware, so he was kind of hiding out inside of his house. When they knocked the door and they asked him to come out, then the Prophet of Allah wasallam said, uh, excuse me, so the Prophet was waiting for him and when they asked him to come out and meet with the Prophet wasallam, Abdullah bin Ubay bin Sulul, he says, Undur They said the Prophet is requesting permission to come in to your house and visit you, like pay you a personal visit. And so he opens the door and he says to the point where the Prophet ﷺ could also hear him, he says, why don't you go and visit those people who have called you here? I didn't ask you to come to my city. I didn't ask you to come here. Go visit those people who called you here. I don't have time for this. And he slams the door and he shut the door. And they went 
to the Prophet and they, the Prophet heard him and they told the Prophet Ya Rasulullah, this is what he's saying. Sa'ad bin Ubadah radiallahu ta'ala anhu comes to the Prophet just trying to again make sure that there's no hard feelings. And he says to the Prophet لَقَدْ مَنَّ اللَّهُ عَلَيْنَا بِكَ يَا رَسُولَ اللَّهُ وَإِنَّا نُرِيدُ أَنْ نَعْقِدَ عَلَىٰ رَأْسِهِ أَتَّاجْ وَنُمَلِّكُهُ عَلَيْنَا Ya Rasulullah, we were gonna make him a leader, but then Allah bless us with you. And that's why he's just having trouble dealing with that reality. So please excuse him, O Messenger of Allah. The Prophet didn't say anything, he got back onto his camel and he continued on his way. Until the Prophet of Allah finally reaches a particular area, neighborhood, and this was the area, the neighborhood of Banu Malik ibn Najjar. Banu Malik bin Najjar. He reaches this particular neighborhood. And there are two, there are a couple of different narrations. One of the narrations says that the she camel of the Prophet came and stopped right there. One of the narrations says that the she-camel of the Prophet sat down one time and then it stood back up. And then it walked forward and it made a U-turn, it turned around and it came back and sat down at the same exact spot again to make it very clear that this was not coincidental, it was not accidental, the animal didn't need any rest or anything like that, but this is very, this is it, this is the location. And where the she-camel sat down on uh, basically the path, the road where it sat down, on one side was this empty plot. It was an empty piece of land. And that empty piece of land was used a lot of times. What was there at that moment was that bunches of dates were laid out there to dry them basically. In the sun, to dry them up, dates were laid out. So it was an empty plot of land. The Prophet of Allah said, who does this belong to? And Mu'adh bin Afra radiallahu ta'ala anhu stepped up and told the Messenger that this belongs to two boys, Sahal and Suhail ibn Amr. Sahal and Suhail, the sons of Amr, they are yatim, they are orphans, their father has passed and I am their guardian, I'm their caretaker. And this plot of land belongs to them, O Messenger of Allah. The Prophet of Allah Wasallam says, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has commanded the she-camel to stop here. This is where the masjid will be established. And some apartments, some rooms will be built next to it. And that is where I will reside with my family. Now, immediately, uh, some of the narrations mentioned that the two boys, Sahal and Suhail, they stepped up and they said, O Messenger of Allah, it's a gift from us to you. And the Prophet ﷺ refused. He said, absolutely no. And again, you see the, 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 the values of the Prophet ﷺ, the ethics and the morality of the Prophet ﷺ. I, wanna, I want you to really understand, well, a lot of times we don't analyze these particular details. Number one, of course, we can obviously say that the Prophet ﷺ, due to his position of leadership, did not take advantage of anyone in the least bit. Secondly, even if the Prophet ﷺ would have requested the land just like that without any payment, he wouldn't have been taking advantage of them for personal reasons. It would have been used for the community. It would have been communal property. It was the masjid. So it still wouldn't have been for personal use, personal gain. But even though it would have been for the community, the Prophet ﷺ taught us that just because something is for the cause of Islam, it's for the sake of the community, it is still not okay to use that as justification to take advantage of someone. 
So there's no, there's no, there, there's no concept within our deen and our religion. Somebody can volunteer, somebody can offer, somebody can donate. But we cannot take somebody else's wealth or possessions and justify it by saying that this is for the community. It doesn't work that way. There's no justification for that. That's not how our deen is structured. And the Prophet ﷺ set that precedent, that example. Remember I talked about when Abu Bakr brought the she-camel for the journey, he said, no, you tell me how much it costs. And he said, Ya Rasulullah, I'm giving it to you. And he said, you tell me how much it costs. I will not ride the camel until I have purchased it from you. And finally, the Prophet ﷺ just would refuse. And they were in a hurry to leave. So Abu Bakr, he forced Abu Bakr to tell him how much a she-camel costs. And he said, I will pay you this much. And then he rode the she-camel. Even though it was for the hijrah, for the migration, for the ummah. Amrum min Allah. But still, I will purchase this from you. Similarly here, the, the, the orphans themselves, Mu'adh bin Afra is saying, take it, O Messenger of Allah. He says, it's not yours, you're just a guardian. So Sahal and Suhail, the orphans themselves, they step up and they say, Ya Rasulullah, of course, take it. And he says, no. And he says, tell me how much this is. And finally somebody else stepped in and told the Prophet ﷺ, this is how much this type of a property would normally sell for. And the Prophet ﷺ told Abu Bakr I want you to offer this much, I want you to hand over this much money to them. And the money was offered over, and then the Prophet ﷺ said, now we will build the masjid here. So these were again the ethics of the Prophet ﷺ. This is leadership. Leading by example, this is what it means. So now that they've designated this plot of land, this piece of land, now where is the Prophet ﷺ supposed to stay? Because it's just an empty plot of land. So Abu Ayyub al-Ansari radiallahu ta'ala anhu's door was right across from this plot of land. His home was directly across. It was the closest home to this plot of land. He came to the Prophet ﷺ and he said, Ya Rasulullah, my home is the closest home to this land. To where the masjid is. Manzili aqrabul manazil ila masjid So the Prophet ﷺ said, then fine, I will go ahead and stay with you until the facilities are ready. And it mentions that Abu Ayyub al-Ansari radiallahu ta'ala anhu took the luggage of the Prophet ﷺ and ran into his home. Just so excited and elated by the fact that the Prophet ﷺ would be staying with them. Now when the Prophet ﷺ, he carries the luggage in, and he takes the luggage and he, it, basically he takes the luggage into the house. The Prophet ﷺ joins him inside of the home and the Prophet ﷺ tells him that if it's okay with you, I'll stay downstairs. There were, it was two stories. He said, I'll stay downstairs and you and your family can stay upstairs. And the Prophet ﷺ told him specifically that this will be easier that this will be easier for me and easier for the people that will visit us. And the word he used was that we're going to be visited by a lot of people. I'm going, to have a, I'm going to be receiving a lot of visitors. It'll just be easier. They won't have to pass through your residence to get all the way upstairs. So I'll stay downstairs. Your family can stay upstairs undisturbed, unperturbed, and they can stay there. So that was the arrangement. Now Abu Ayyub al-Ansari radiallahu ta'ala anhu, he actually relates this himself, he says that I was uncomfortable from the very first day. The Prophet al-Amru fawqa al-Adab, al-Amru fawqa al-Adab, right, command comes before the etiquette. 
So I, the Prophet requested downstairs, so I gave him downstairs. But I was uncomfortable from the very first day. Because I went upstairs and I told my wife that I just feel awkward walking around here on top and the Prophet is underneath us. It just feels disrespectful. You know, uh, what I'll mention here as a little side point, because this is why we study the Qur'an, this is why we study hadith, this is why we study seerah, to take lessons from it. You know, a lot of times when we talk about adab, like you might remember sometimes people are like putting the mushaf on the ground, people don't like it, and they'll tell you, that's khilaf al-adab, don't do that, don't put the mushaf on the ground. Immediately someone's like, brother, where's your dalil? Show me a hadith where it says you can't put a mushaf on the ground. I don't got a hadith that says you can't put the mushaf on the ground, but adab is something within our deen. What kind of a dalil, what kind of an evidence is there for the fact that if the Prophet is downstairs, you shouldn't feel comfortable upstairs? There's no evidence for that. And it might not be a concept even for someone. But Abu Ayyub al-Ansari felt uncomfortable with the fact, and that shows you that there is, a, there, is a, there is room for someone practicing etiquette, adab, and respect, as long as it doesn't cross some type of a line in terms of aqidah or belief. But outside of that, there is always room for adab. And the Prophet ﷺ, you know, came to exemplify and teach this type of adab and respect. So Abu Ayyub al-Ansari radiallahu ta'ala anhu said that I just felt uncomfortable. And so he says that me and my wife, Abu Ayyub al-Ansari, and he says, Ummu Ayyub, me and my wife, we actually, the first couple of days, we spent it like all the way in the corner. Like we were just afraid to even walk around. And not only just because of the other aspect of it, walking around probably makes noise and things like that. If you live in an apartment complex, you know about that very well. So he said, we just didn't want to disturb the Prophet ﷺ. We felt this was khilaf al-adab. So we used to just stay in a corner of the upstairs like apartment. Just felt uncomfortable walking around on top of the Prophet ﷺ. Until finally he says that one day we had an incident. I had kind of like a water bowl or a water dish, right? Like kind of like a container for water, like a clay pot that we used to keep water in. And somebody knocked it over or broke it, just accidentally. And the water spilled out all over the floor. And of course, you know, it can happen even in our homes today. So imagine those types of homes. The water would leak through and start to drip through. And he says that me and my wife, we freaked out. And the only thing that we could see that would be enough to soak up, because it was like a big old clay pot full of water, so it was a lot of water. The only thing we could find that was big enough to soak up the water was our blanket. I mean, again, you're talking about in the desert, so at night, there's no heaters and things like that. So you need like a big, thick, you know, wool blanket, or like the skin of a camel or something like that to keep you kind of warm. So the only thing we had big enough was this blanket that we used to sleep in, lihaf. So we just grabbed it and we threw it down on the water and we soaked up all the water with it. So that it wouldn't drip down and leak down into the residence of the Prophet And so Alhamdulillah we were able to clean that mess up. There was no water leaking through but now we had a problem. We had a wet blanket. So we just put it out to dry but of course it was evening time, it didn't dry right away. And so that night we just... You know, laid in bed, kind of just shivering at night, not even able to sleep properly. What, what's, the ver- what's the lesson in all of this? It again shows you the love, the respect that they had for the Messenger 
And Abu Ayyub al-Ansari radiallahu ta'ala tells a lot of these very interesting stories. So these are the stories that he used to tell people long afterwards. And in fact, there are narrations which mention that even after the passing of the Prophet ﷺ, that Sahaba radiallahu ta'ala they used to like to sit with Abu Ayyub al-Ansari. Whenever new people would accept Islam or people would visit Medina, they used to come to Abu Ayyub al-Ansari and they used to tell us stories. How was it like to live with the Prophet ﷺ? And he used to tell these stories, so he said that, you know, we used to, my wife would cook food and we would send it down for the Prophet And he would eat from it, but the Prophet you know, ate, had a very limited diet, he didn't eat a lot. So he would eat however much he would eat, and then he would send up the remainder of the food because he didn't want it to go to waste. And we used to then kind of wait for the leftover food to come back, and then we used to eat the leftover food, and we specifically, because the Prophet ﷺ had so much adab, kul yaminika wa kul mimma yalik. Right, the Prophet ﷺ in a hadith when he's teaching adab of eating to a young sahabi, he says, eat with your right hand and eat from in front of you. So they would have a qasa'ah, they would have like a big dish, and the Prophet ﷺ would only eat from in front of him, and he would eat a limited quantity amount. So when he would send the dish back up, there was only just a little bit that had been eaten from in front of the Prophet ﷺ. So they said that not only would we eat the leftovers then, but what we would do is we would move the food into the area from where the Prophet ﷺ had eaten, and we would eat from there. This is an authentic narration mentioned by Imam Bukhari and the scholars of the seerah, and they said, we did this to get the barakah and the blessing from the Prophet So much love and respect for the Prophet So we would remove the food into that area and we would eat from that. He says, until one day we sent down some food, and my wife had cooked it, and there are different narrations. Some narrations mentioned that it, was, it, it had a lot of onions in it. Some narrations mentioned it had a lot of garlic in it. Um, and we sent the food down, and the Prophet received it, and then he sent it back up. And he hadn't touched it. He hadn't touched it. So he says, we got so worried. You know, like you can imagine, sometimes even a guest comes and something like that happens. Like the wife is crying and he's like, you know, standing outside the room. Like, is everything okay? So he said, we had like a complete meltdown. Like the Prophet didn't need it. And so we asked, Ya Rasulullah, there are multiple narrations. In one he says, Ya Rasulullah, did it bother you? Do you not like this food? One narration he even asked the Prophet a haram? Did we send you like haram food? Like is everything okay, Ya Rasulullah? And so the Prophet ﷺ tells him, he goes, no, no, it's not haram. But he said, I didn't eat it because I don't like eating this food because of the garlic and the onion. And then he told him why. Again, he told him there's nothing wrong with it. But he told him, فَإِنِّي أُنَاجِي مَنْ لَا تُنَاجِي I talk to people you don't talk to. فَإِنِّي unaja. In one narration he says that, I have very personal conversations. And what he was referring to was the angels and the malaika. He said, the angels and the malaika come to me. Jibreel alayhi salam comes to me. And the smell of onions and garlic is something that they don't like. And that's why it's from the adab of the Prophet ﷺ that he didn't, he advised against, you know, eating things that had a very strong stench or smell, like onions and garlic before even coming to the masjid, before praying. Because there are narrations, a hadith of the Prophet ﷺ that say when a person prays, then the angels and the malaika directly receive the words from, their, from the mouth of the musalli, and they take them up to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So he said that, you know, don't eat like things with a very strong smell, specifically onions and garlic. And I would even extend that over to things even more problematic than that, that are actually are impermissible. So, you know, 
if somebody does have a habit of like smoking, which is something you should give up, it's not good for your health, it's impermissible, but if somebody smokes, and you are maybe hopefully giving it up, but you should not smoke and then pray, or come to the masjid. Because that's even more severe, and even more nastier, than what the Prophet ﷺ talked about. What he talked about was onions and garlic, halal. Grows from the ground, halal, completely permissible, it's food. Right? Basal mentioned in the Qur'an. Right, there's nothing wrong with it. But the Prophet still said this is from the adab of salah. So he said, unaji I talk to people you don't talk to. And Abu Yub al-Ansari, because of the love that he had for the Prophet, as we've heard, he said, Ya Rasulullah, inni akrahu ma la takrah. Ma, ma takrah. Inni akrahu ma takrah. I dislike whatever you dislike. And they actually note about Abu Yub al-Ansari that he used to completely stay away from eating onions and even garlic from that point on, that moment on. Because he said, if the Prophet didn't eat it, I ain't gonna eat it either. And so that was the attitude of Abu Yub al-Ansari. So these were some of the personal stories. It also mentions in the narrations that once the Prophet ﷺ arrived there in Medina, the first day that he was there in Medina at the home of Abu Ayyub al-Ansari, radiallahu ta'ala anhu, the narration mentions that one person showed up at the door with food. And the Prophet ﷺ called them in, told them to have a seat, said, see who else is outside, call some people in, and everybody sit together and eat, and they ate. And right when that person got done in the process, some thanked him for his hospitality and everything. And as he was leaving, there was somebody else standing at the door. And the Prophet وسلم, said, all right, come on in. And he called in a bunch of people and he said, come on, let's eat their food. And as soon as that person was leaving and he opened the door, there was like four more people standing outside, all holding like plates of food. And this was like a constant thing every day, morning and evening. There were people just with food standing outside, to just serve it to the Prophet ﷺ and in the hope of being able to sit with the Prophet ﷺ and eat with the Prophet ﷺ. And the Prophet ﷺ would always invite people in, specifically ask for the uh, fuqara, the masakin, you know, the, 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 especially those who had migrated from Mecca to Medina. He would ask them, call them in and share the food with them. And there was this whole community that was being built and developed. This brotherhood, this sisterhood that was being developed uh, all throughout. When the, it also mentions, I forgot to mention this, that when the Prophet of Allah ﷺ stopped there in front of the masjid, which would become the masjid, and the home of Abu Yubal Ansari would become his temporary residence for six months, the, it mentions that some of the uh, women and children of that neighborhood, Banu Najjar, they started to say the following couplets, نَحْنُ جَوَارٍ مِّن بَنِ النَّجَّارِ يَا حَبَّذَا مُحَمَّدٌ مِّن جَارِ that they started, نَحْنُ جِوَارٍ مِّن بَنِنْ نَجَّارِ يَا حَبَّذَا مُحَمَّدٌ مِّن جَارِ That they started to say that we are the neighbors of Banu Najjar and look at this like great blessing that Muhammad is our neighbor. So it's basically their, their way of saying like, my neighbor is Muhammad, what's your neighbor's name? Right? Who's your neighbor? Who lives in your neighborhood? Because Muhammad Rasulullah lives in my neighborhood. Um, and so this was a huge source of pride. And the Prophet ﷺ, when he heard them saying this, the narrations mentioned that the Prophet of Allah ﷺ said to them that, um, Atuhibuni? 
Are you expressing and showing your love for me? And they said, E wallahi ya Rasulullah. Of course, O Messenger of Allah, we love you so much. And the Prophet said, Ana wallahi uhibbukum. Ana wallahi uhibbukum. Ana wallahi uhibbukum. I swear by Allah, I love you as well. I love you as well. In another narration, the Prophet of Allah says, Ya'lamullahu. Ya'lamullahu, which is a way of making Allah witness. God knows, Allah knows, Anna qalbi yuhibbukunna. My, my heart loves you. I have this natural affinity and love for you. And so the Prophet of Allah ﷺ, you know, showed a lot of love to the people there. And this is how the community was initially built and established. There are some narrations which go on. In the next session, we'll talk about the actual building and construction of the masjid. What it was like, who was involved in it, how did they construct it, what were the materials used, what was the layout and the structure of it. The last thing I'll tell you is about the home. The home of Abu Ayyub al-Ansari radiallahu ta'ala anhu. Later on in the life of Abu Ayyub al-Ansari radiallahu ta'ala anhu, he moved from Medina to Basra. And eventually died in what we know as Turkey today, Constantinople. Um, but when he moved from there, Abdullah bin Abbas radiallahu ta'ala anhu took over. He told Abu Abdullah bin Abbas, you take care of my house while I'm gone to Basra. Abdullah bin Abbas took over the house and eventually when, and he gifted it to Abdullah, or, or rather the narrations mentioned that Abdullah bin Abbas eventually paid Abu Ayyub al-Ansari radiallahu ta'ala let me have the house. And he moved from his house into this house, specifically saying that this is the home where the Prophet ﷺ lived. So he moved into that house. Eventually mentions that some other sahabi purchased it from Abdullah bin Abbas and he eventually made it a waqf. He just gifted it. And it eventually became a place where masakin and fuqara were given a place to stay. So it was eventually turned into what we would consider a homeless shelter. The home of Abu Ayyub al-Ansari. I mean, think about the blessing of that home. Think about the sadaqah jariyah. The blessing of the Prophet ﷺ staying in that home was that eventually that home served as a homeless shelter for people in the blessed city of Medina, and so this is a little bit about the Prophet of Allah's arrival into Medina and kind of the conversations and the things that happened, how they designated the land where the Prophet took up residence uh, for the first six months. And what we'll talk about in the next session is the actual construction of the masjid of the Prophet And after that, inshallah, we'll talk about a detailed uh, layout of not just the geography, but the social structure, the economics, and even some of the tribal ethnic layout of the city of Medina. And then what steps the Prophet specifically took in light of the current situation of Medina in order to be able to build the ideal community that the Prophet ﷺ was able to establish there in the blessed city of Medina. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala grant us all the ability to practice everything that was said and heard. Subhanallahi wa bihamdihi. Subhanakallahu wa bihamdik. Nashadu wa la ilaha illa anta. Astaghfiruka wa natubu ilayk.